Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Luke Lebrun, editor of Press Progress, Real Life Ottawan, and proud member of UFCW Canada Local 1006A. Welcome to Shortcuts. Great to be with you, Jonathan. Today on the show, the independent MP and the honey trap. Oh, bother. And can a policy be dangerous even if it's likely to never become law or actually be implemented? This episode is brought to you by Alex McKay, Scott Reisterer, Kelsey Jones, Ryan Tremblay, Mike File, Leo Rayner, Max Fawcett, hey, and Leia. My name is Leia. I live in Toronto. I've been in Canada for a bit under a year, and I'm proud to support uh, Canada Land because I can learn how Canada really works from the inside without the corporate mainstream sanitized version. So thank you, Jesse, and thank you, Canada Land. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and this is Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. A Toronto MP who was dropped by the Liberal Party days before the last federal election is speaking out tonight. Kevin Vaughn claims he was the victim of foreign interference, a sexual assault allegation, part of a setup to bring him down. He says that he's been informed that there was some degree of Chinese meddling in his particular riding in that particular election cycle. Madam Speaker, the issue of foreign interference touches all Canadians and Canada. And over the last year, I have also closely examined circumstances and events involving my circumstances and situation in Spadina, Fort York. I have reached a conclusion that is certainly within the realm of possibility that I may have been subjected to Chinese interference in 2021, one that destroyed my name and worked to prevent my election in 2021. A little over a week ago, the Globe and Mail got a hold of yet another report from CSIS, Canada's spy agency, warning of Chinese meddling in Canada's politics. This one was dated just ahead of the 2021 federal election and alleged that China's own security service had taken specific actions to target the Canadian MPs who'd spearheaded a motion that had decried China's treatment of Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims as a genocide. In particular, it said a Chinese agent had sought information about an MP's family members who they believed might be in China in order to somehow put pressure on them. The Globe source elaborated on the report, saying the MP in question was conservative Michael Chong, who'd sponsored the Uyghur motion, and that at least one person who'd been involved in the operation was Zhao Wei, a staffer in China's Toronto consulate. Chong does have family in Hong Kong, but out of an abundance of caution and knowing that China was miffed at him, he hadn't been in touch. So as such, the first he'd heard about any of this was when the Globe reached out, which is 
never an ideal way to learn anything. I mean, you, you don't get a cold call from Bob Fife saying, hey, I learned something awesome that you're going to want to hear. So on Monday, a, a week later, after the usual sort of back and forth between the opposition and the government about who knew what when and why weren't people told sooner, Canada expelled the Chinese diplomat, officially declaring Joe a persona non grata, a term the government only really gets to bust out about once or twice a decade. China in turn has expelled the Canadian diplomat and huffily threatened other further measures that are still unspecified as of this recording. But we're not going to talk about that, not directly anyway. Instead, we're going to zoom in on a story that sprouted from this context in that intervening week and considered the degree to which a conspiracy theory spouted by an elected official ought or ought not to be considered newsworthy. Another MP claims he is victim of Chinese meddling, the National Post pronounced on its front page last Thursday. The MP in question there is independent MP Kevin Vong, who's my MP. He represents the downtown Toronto riding of Sparna, Fort York. Luke, would you care to explain why he's an independent MP? Well, I guess going back to the federal election in 2021, Kevin Wong, I guess, you know, several days before the election, story came out in the Toronto Star, basically detailing how he had been the subject of sexual assault charges, uh, which were previously dropped, but he did not disclose that uh, apparently to the uh, Liberal Party. And so, uh, you know, obviously this came out right before the election. Basically, yeah. So the Liberals dropped him as a candidate just a couple days before the election. The story came out on Thursday the 16th in the Toronto Star. The party told him to pause his campaign because they hadn't heard about this sexual assault charge that, that had been dropped. You know, because it had been dropped, it sort of still lives in this weird limbo space of he's never been convicted and has never been acquitted. So they dropped him as a candidate on the Saturday and the election was the Monday, but he still narrowly beat the NDP candidate, Norm Pasquale, by a little over a couple thousand votes or 4.4 percentage points. What he's now alleging is that all of that that unfolded in the days before the election and potentially even going back to the original alleged incident, allegedly criminal incident, was that it was all part of a Chinese-connected honeypot or honey trap sting to entrap him and to ensure that he wouldn't be elected and, I guess, to elect the NDP's Norm Pasquale instead. But you have to get 800 words into the Post story about halfway down before you get to the statement that while Vong has no proof he was the target of what he calls a honey trap, he maintains the pieces add up. And by that point in the story, they've already quoted two experts, both of whom speaking on Chinese tactics generally, not these allegations in particular. So, Luke, given that he's alleging a plot against him with no proof, would you say it's fair to call this a conspiracy theory? Uh, I don't know if I would call it a conspiracy theory. I mean, one of my, I mean, I guess there's two initial things that sort of stand out to me about this. I mean, first of all, is that uh, Kevin Wong kind of did the rounds and uh, did multiple media appearances to talk about this. And there was, you know, I, I reviewed some of these and there's kind of a staggering lack of meaningful, critical engagement with the sequence of events that he's laying out, uh, which seemed like a pretty obvious place to maybe ask questions. I mean, the other part of it, too, I mean, let, let's just talk about those sequence of events, you know, like, according to his own story, you know, he's alleging a Chinese spy set up this elaborate scheme to entrap him, you know, years before he ever ran for office. He says that he uh, basically met this person on a dating app in November 2018. They dated for months until, you know, the incident happened in April 2019 and police subsequently charged him with sexual assault. Charges were then dropped in November 2019. Flash forward two years to 2021, at which point uh, Kim Wong runs for office. And then, you know, what is he alleging? Is he saying that China 
decided to release the details of this sexual assault charge uh, right at that exact moment. Uh, you know, it's not entirely clear what exactly he's alleging. I mean, you know, if you actually watch the interviews, it's kind of funny. He repeatedly says, you know, this is the MO of a Chinese honey trap. He uses that exact talking point in several interviews, but he's always very vague about what he's actually, you know, implying or what he's actually insinuating happened. Yeah, particularly on Moore in the Morning, which is a morning show on Toronto's News Talk 1010. I think he'd been a longtime panelist on there, but there was about a seven, eight minute interview. And, you know, John Moore, the host, is gentle enough, but he does keep pushing again and again and again to ask, like, what is it that you're alleging? Basically, are you alleging that this woman is a spy? Okay, now you've used the phrase honeypot twice. Normally, that is where they send in a person, you know, depends on who you're sexually attracted to, I guess, um, who sort of poses as a romantic interest, and then you end up entangled. Are you saying that's what happened? Well, it's, it's something that's well-documented, right, in terms of the Chinese MO. It's, it's happened in the U.S. Right. Um, but, I mean, I'm asking you if it happened to you. I mean, you would be the first-hand witness to this. Yeah, it's... I, I think if you took a step back and you looked at what happened to me, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. You just said he just keeps reverting to the same handful of points. Like, well, the pattern fits or to things to that effect. You know, like, like what exactly is the strategy that he's alleging China's, you know, China's spy agency is engaging in here? You know, is he saying that they are going out and creating you know, dating profiles? Like, are they creating plenty of fish profiles and just, you know, randomly trying to date people and, you know, get access to people that way in the event that maybe two or three years in the future, they might possibly run for public office? It's just kind of a... Given that he's an elected official, is the allegation itself newsworthy? Like, he is an elected official saying that he believes that China was out to get him. Is that news in and of itself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's clearly in the public interest if uh, an official elected official is claiming that they were abducted by aliens or if they were, you know, claim that they found an interdimensional portal. Like if someone said something that was, you know, pretty outlandish, I mean, it would definitely be news that they said it. My main initial impression was is just that there's no critical engagement with it. It just seems like they're kind of giving Wong a platform to just sort of lay out his claims and there's not really any pushback. But as you mentioned, you know, you'll find like two thirds of the way down some of these stories, just, you know, Kevin Wong provide absolutely no evidence to support any of his claims. And it's just sort of left that way in a very subtle, understated way, you know, kind of buried uh, further down the story. And it, I, I feel like that's kind of a, a problem. Like, like, what is it about our media culture that, you know, people feel a reluctance to really critically engage with a politician making these kinds of, you know, allegations that clearly have holes in it or, you know, seem a little dubious. I mean, there's reasons to to doubt, uh, you know, doubt Kevin Wong's story. There are reasons to question his credibility, I would say. So, you know, like it kind of makes me wonder, like, what is, you know, what is it about our media culture that kind of prevents us to really scrutinize something like this? I mean, one reason it could be the simple, simply the, the credulity around claims relating to China. Goodness knows some outlets have been better or worse than others on this, but I do think it's notable that neither the Star, which broke the original story, nor the Globe, which has probably done the best reporting on the the on the Chinese interference allegations, have picked up on this. Have chosen to pick up on this. It's the Sun, the Post, not even CBC, CTV. I mean, people are more likely to believe things that fit in with their 
presuppositions. And this is a great story of this guy who was, you know, thrown under the bus, supposedly thrown under the bus by the liberals as part of this alleged Chinese plot. I mean, one of the things that sort of has in some respects, try to lend it credibility is that he met with CSIS about this. And this is one of those things where you look at the different articles and you see how this sort of gets a bit, not necessarily twisted, but how it's framed slightly differently. So in the initial post articles, Vuong says he met with CSIS in March to discuss his concerns. So that means like he met with them and said, like, hey, I think this happened to me. The Sun article, it was phrased as Vuong said he participated in a two-hour briefing session with Canadian security intelligence service agents this year. Now, a briefing could certainly imply that they were talking to him about this. CTV just had it as Vong said he had a two-hour meeting with CSIS, which once again, one would a person would probably take to mean CSIS was the one telling him about it. On News Talk, John Moore said, I understand you've had a briefing from CSIS. He said, I met with CSIS for two hours, and our exchange was very insightful. And obviously, I can't convey the content because of the ongoing conversations. It certainly seems to uh, leave ambiguous or obscure exactly which, which direction the information was traveling. I'm really glad you picked up on the response that Wong gave in the John Moore interview because I noticed that too. So Moore starts by saying, you know, I understand you had a briefing with CSIS and you can actually see Wong kind of something goes on in his head and he kind of recharacterizes it as a meeting. And, you know, it's like, what, like, is he suggesting this wasn't a briefing, you know? Like, and then in another interview, he says that it was CSIS asking him questions and he was giving them information. So that's not a briefing if he's the one, like, who initiated this, whatever you want to call it, with CSIS? That's my question. What he said in the House of Commons was that I have had a substantial meeting with CSIS that was over two hours to discuss my thoughts and concerns. That certainly suggests that he went to them as like, maybe they don't have a like a box to put in feedback, or maybe they have an open-door policy. I guess they should have an open-door policy for MPs. But uh, he approached them, and they sort of heard him out for a couple hours. And I'd be very curious how that discussion went. It was like, why do you believe this? Well, it makes sense. Like, well, I don't know. Well, it doesn't make sense? But yeah. I'm like, okay. Like, it's, it's clearly of comfort to him that this would make sense in that respect. Like, how did the sequence of events befall him that led to him being cast out of the party two days before an election. I'm glad, I guess, it helped him make sense of it, but I don't think it necessarily helps anyone else make sense of it. I mean, the original, two of the original star reporters who broke the story have weighed in on Twitter. Evie Kwong, who was at the Star's Now Advice, said, what happened is that you did not disclose your sexual assault charge that the Liberal Party didn't vet or know about until a victim came forward to us. We then accessed court records and found you and wrote a story. Alicia Sham, who's the Star's, she was a longtime court supporter, she's now at City Hall, tweeted, we'll just add to this, just add to, Evie's comment, because I helped Evie get the court docs here and reviewed them myself. There is nothing about this case that seems any different from an allegation of sexual assault in the context of a date. The alleged incident took place before he ran for MP. One other thing I find actually really telling about the original Post story is that the cut line, so the caption of the lead photo reads, Independent MP Kevin Vong, Sparana Fort York, in his office in Ottawa, Ontario, on Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. Photo by Brian Passifume. Now, Passifume is the reporter who wrote the story. And I couldn't find anything that he or The Post had published on Vong between when that photo was taken on March 23rd and this story last week. So to me, that strongly suggests that The Post did this interview with Vong about a month and a half ago, but that, for whatever reason, they originally weren't terribly anxious to publish it. March 23rd was the day after uh, MP Han Dong resigned for the Liberal Caucus over a questionably sourced global news report suggesting that he'd essentially committed treason. He, he's now suing them. And it may be that that had prompted Vong to go to the media with his own theory that the Post was hesitant to run it until the Globe broke the news about 
Michael Chong. I don't know. Do you think is that is that is that is conspiracy theory in and of itself? Am I reading too much into one date? Is that a conspiracy theory in and of itself? I mean, we would probably need a couple of other data points to cross-reference that, I suppose. It is an interesting observation. I hadn't noticed that before. Another interesting thing in the National Post article, it mentions kind of like towards the end, it just sort of mentions this in passing without really substantiating it at all. It mentions an Axios story about congressman in the United States named Eric Swalwell, who you know, apparently, you know, apparently this is a real thing where, you know, uh, there was a Chinese spy who was kind of going around political circles and befriending young politicians early in their careers and even had a number of affairs with some Midwestern mayors, according to the story. And it, it kind of tries to equate it, but like it doesn't really provide anything other than just like, oh, this thing happened once a few years ago. And, you know, maybe it's just like that. And then it just kind of leaves it like that just in passing, which is kind of a strange, you know, just kind of a strange analogy to just drop randomly in a story like this. But, you know, I, I, I dug a little bit deeper into that Axios story. And I mean, what they're what they're describing in, in that original story is someone who was actually going to uh, political events and going to campaign events and going to political conferences and befriending people. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, there were some claims of, of affairs happening, but it wasn't really a honey trap thing. It was just someone who was going around to different political events and, you know, making connections with people. And that to me seems like a pretty, you know, it doesn't seem like that far-fetched of a thing that a foreign government might, you know, invest some time and energy into doing. But to equate that with what Kevin Wong is saying, uh, you know, where, you know, he's basically saying someone created a dating profile and just randomly found him on the internet and then, with the hope that maybe three years later he runs for office, it just seems like a very different situation. Or alternatively, that someone put her up to going to the star just a few days before the election at the worst possible time for him. I mean, the, the explanation for that, or what the star said in its original story, was that basically this woman had been out, out of the country for a while, or been out of Toronto at least, came back to Toronto, saw his faces on election signs, and was like, holy crap, this is the guy who, you know, in her view, sexually assaulted her. I guess that is a coincidence of timing but i mean the whole his whole election was a kind of a coincidence of timing and like as you well know just from general being general media consumer and certainly press progress during elections all kinds of stories are broken about all kinds of things that candidates have done and have said in the past all the time right up to election day and with george santos like famously after election day right like the other thing with vong is like his whole process was pretty whirlwind right he Adam Vaughn, who was the incumbent in the riding, uh, the Liberal MP, said he wouldn't seek re-election. He now said on Sunday, August 8th, 2021. By Friday, Vaughn had been acclaimed as the new candidate. The election was called two days later on the Sunday. And then the news about the civil suit broke on uh, two weeks later on September 1st. And then the criminal charge, uh, like September 16th, a few days before election day. So, like, it's not... Surprising that someone who was not previously in the public eye to any extent, to, to a significant extent beyond being, you know, a, a distant runner-up for a Toronto City Council seat, would not have been vetted by the media. Although it is kind of surprising that the Liberals hadn't actually done a criminal background check on him. I, you know, it's funny. You know, I think that anyone who tries to guess where a story comes from in the middle of an election is like ninety-nine percent of the time going to be wrong. The reality is that information is coming from all sorts of different places. Often it's just random people who have invested their time into digging into things or, I mean, or it's, uh, you know, original investigative reporting by the news outlets themselves. But for some reason, you know, I mean, I guess there is a political interest on the parts of these 
parties to allege that there is this, you know, top-down elaborate conspiracy where, you know, the leaders of the parties are kind of concocting these scandals in back rooms. And often, you know, the reality is much more, uh, much more banal than they would uh, have you believe. How would you have reported this? Like, what would a responsible way to have reported an allegation like this be? I mean, he he's basically dis- attempting to discredit a sexual assault allegation which we have no reason to believe is not credible. He's attempting to discredit it by claiming that this is somehow tied in with a, you know, Chinese uh, spy operation or whatever and providing absolutely no evidence for that. I mean, one thing definitely uh, is I would probably seek to center the person who is making these allegations, who is now being kind of smeared without any way to to respond. I guess it's possible the Post took so long in the story because they were trying to get a hold of the court docs because maybe those would have, like, names of sexual assault complainants are generally under a publication ban, but they may or may not have been redacted from the court documents. I guess they could have been trying to get a hold of that. Six weeks would be quite a long time for that. But yeah, no, I mean, presumably the star is the only one who knows who this person is unless the, unless the name is contained in the court documents. I mean, it's disappointing but not surprising that her voice has not been present of late. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. So, Luke, as you probably know, on this show, we like to duly note things. Today, I would like to note duly a hearing by Parliament's, by the House of Commons Heritage Committee that took place on Monday with the, te- with the title, Tech Giants' Current and Ongoing Use of Intimidation and Subversion Tactics to Evade Regulation in Canada and Across the World. That is an uncommonly aggressive name for a meeting title. And in fact, it was 
so uncommonly aggressive that the representative from Facebook who was supposed to show up, Nick Clegg, who was the, I think they're a global head of basically of government relations. He's a former head of the Liberal Democratic Party in the UK. He may even be a Sir Nick Clegg. I'm not actually sure. That wouldn't surprise me. He decided he just didn't want to show up. And the explanation they gave that that was given, and they Facebook posted a statement to this effect, and this was read a committee, was that they had changed the hearing to something basically so aggressive. He said the hearing that he was invited to was called the response of companies in the information technology sector to Bill C-18. C-18 is the Online News Act, the thing that would, once passed, would force Google and Facebook, uh, at least theoretically, to pay news organizations for links. The hearing was kind of about that, but really they were trying to ask about, they were trying to grill Facebook on their threat to basically shut out news links in Canada, shut down news in Canada, should this bill go through. So Facebook claimed to be caught off guard by this change in the heading. They did change the title of the meeting, but like the the new meeting title was taken from the exact text of the original motion that called the meeting in the first place. It shouldn't have caught them off guard. And so instead, they sent to the meeting Kevin Chan, who's their global policy director. He's Canada-based, though. He's well, He was Michael Ignatieff's head of policy back when Ignatieff was liberal leader, as well as Rachel Curran, who's Facebook's head of public policy in Canada, who was Stephen Harper's head of policy. And... You know, the meeting was pretty heated, but uh, one highlight came at the very end of their testimony. And as Jason Kent, who heads up a, uh, a trade association of online news publishers in the States, pointed out, you could actually get a little bit more of this from the audio-only feed than you could from the video feed of the meeting. So I just want to play this. An awkward accidental exchange at, at the very end between Kevin Chan from Meta, Facebook, and the committee's chair, Liberal MP Hetty Fry. So that we can go into the 15 minutes of business. Thank you very much, Mr. Chan and Ms. Curran. Thank you, Madam Chair. So reprehensible. I'm sorry. Uh, did you say something, Mr. Chan? I beg your pardon? I see, but your mic was on, so we all heard your comment. I just thought you should recognize that. And it was quite inappropriate. Thank you. So let's uh, have the suspension so we go into... I think that's just a wonderful, little, delightfully awkward, cringeworthy piece of audio that just perfect sort of thing to play on a podcast. That's all. Duly noted. Now, Luke, what would you like to note, Julie, today? I would like to duly note that I recently attended the Canadian Association of Journalists Conference in Vancouver... But I wanted to share two personal highlights with you, Jonathan. So the first thing, you know, there's a big emphasis on photojournalism at this year's CAJ conference. And Amber Bracken, the photojournalist from uh, the Narwhal, who covered the Wet'suwet and Land Defenders in northern BC, gave a, a speech where, you know, talked about the uh, she had been arrested by the RCMP. And so now the Narwhal is suing the RCMP over this. And also in her speech talked about a lot of the labor issues and precariousness faced by uh, people who are working in photojournalism. And as you can imagine, you know, uh, newsrooms are trimming down their budgets uh, or trimming. I mean, they're cutting and shutting down newsrooms and there's not a lot of money going around for photo journalists. So when people are looking for uh, people to take photos, the people taking those photos are often working on precarious contracts or if they get arrested, there isn't really a whole lot of support for them. Or if they are in a dangerous situation, there are all kinds of labor issues and, you know, safety issues at play. So I wanted to note that because it was quite important. The other thing was Nardwar the Human Serviette who delivered the keynote address for the conference. 
And of course, you know, your listeners will know Nardwar as, uh, you know, a member of the Vancouver, British Columbia punk rock band, The Evaporators. But also, you might not know this, but also he was on Much Music for a time. You know, he would often interview musicians and politicians. Nardwar famously created a, uh, a big national news story in 1997 when he questioned Jean Chrétien during a, an APEC uh, conference about the RCMP pepper spraying protesters outside. And Chrétien famously replied that he didn't know what pepper spray was. You know, for him, pepper was something they put on his plate. But I really have to say Nardwar's keynote was, like, surprisingly, one of the most inspiring speeches I've ever seen delivered in person. There was one moment where this journalist who was actually standing behind him in the clip with Chrétien, he put up his hand and he said, you don't recognize me, do you? And I was the guy who was standing behind you. And I actually whispered to you, say something about pepper spray. And Nardwar was kind of shocked. Like, I heard audible gasps from the audience. And, like, I actually felt like I was in a, a Phil Donahue episode or something. I want to duly note uh, Nardwar the Human Serviette, photojournalism as a profession, and uh, the Canadian Association of Journalists. Duly noted. Over the weekend, the Liberal Party of Canada held their national policy convention in Ottawa. And at the end of the weekend, they came up with a list of two dozen policy priorities. But halfway down right in between free movement between Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom, and a citizen's assembly on electoral reform, is one simply called Combating Disinformation in Canada. It basically says, whereas the United Nations Secretary General recognizes disinformation as an existential risk to humanity, whereas online information sources are the source of most disinformation aimed at and or available to Canadians, whereas those who produce misinformation seek to undermine trust in people and institutions, including mainstream media and governments, Whereas one recent poll found 44% of Canadians believe much of the information from news organizations is false, and 71% believe official government accounts of events are untrustworthy, be it resolved that the Liberal Party of Canada, one, requests the government provide additional public funds to support advertisement-free news and information reporting by Canadian media through an arms-length nonpartisan mechanism, and what we're going to discuss now, the second part, requests the government explore options to hold online information services accountable for the veracity of material published on their platforms and to limit publication only to material whose sources can be traced. <sighs> Luke, what do you make of that? I mean, there are two parts to that policy. First part is suggesting that the government should do something about the quote-unquote veracity of information online. In other words, the regulating the truthfulness of information. And the second part of it is talking about, you know, restricting information that has no traceable sources. What does that all mean? And that has kind of led to a lot of criticism from people such as Michael Geist, who, first of all, is suggesting that the thing about sources is suggesting that, you know, journalists won't be able to use unnamed sources and stories, or they would have to be able to somehow disclose who their sources are. So one thinks to some of the reporting in the Globe and Mail about uh, Chinese foreign interference, for example. So obviously, this has created a bit of a, a bit of controversy, because whenever the government decides that it's going to be the arbiter of what is true and what is not true, it, you know, opens up the door to some big philosophical questions. Yeah, I mean, Michael Geist has been pretty, I don't know if it, maybe alarmist is maybe excessive, but he's been pretty concerned in his rhetoric, calling it dangerous, saying it, you know, opens the door to things like basically the sort of oppression, it starts a slippery slope on the sort of oppression we see in other countries. Uh, Michael Geist, by the way, I guess we should probably explain, although listeners of the show probably know, he's a law professor at uh, University of Ottawa who's kind of the Canadian expert on a lot of telecommunications and regulation, as well as copy issues of copyright and a few other sort of things that intersect with 
federal media regulation. And he's a really good writer and he's a, he's a really good speaker. And so when he says something like this and calls a government policy dangerous, it definitely causes people to set up, set up. And certainly something like this will end up with a segment on the national. Now, I mean, one thing is that it's official party policy now, but it's unlikely to ever actually become part of a platform. I mean, this they, they eventually I mean, they told they, they eventually said pretty emphatically, like, no, we're never actually going to do this. Liberals, like all Canadians, are right to be worried about misinformation and disinformation and wanting to make sure that Canadians are uh, protected from it. However, that policy is not a policy we would ever implement. And as Paul Wells put it in a blog post about this particular thing, you know, now, as everyone knows, policy resolutions at party conventions in Canada aren't binding on anything, really. They're just a chance for the rank-and-file membership to build pillow forts in the basement, but it's always wise to check in on the kids just in case they're getting up to some mischief. What is the correct degree of concern or alarm to have when it's something that, oh, this is bad policy that has been passed but it probably will never actually make a difference. How concerned should we be about the fact that something that maybe hasn't been thought through has made it into the official party policy document? So first of all, there's, I mean, the whole backstory about how this policy came about, and I've done some digging into that and spoken to the actual author of the uh, of the policy, and it's kind of insightful. So I, I spoke to someone by the name of uh, Catherine Evans, who is a uh, former commissioner of the Vancouver Park Boards. and Which is, is an in, elected position, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, okay. And she is also on the Electoral District Association, involved with the Electoral District Association in Vancouver Quadra, which is Joyce Murray's uh, riding. And what she told me is basically this idea came about as a result of a workshop on disinformation that they were having in their little, you know, in their little writing meeting. And it was kind of like a brainstorming session and people were talking about like, oh, how can we, you know, how can we do stuff about disinformation? She told me that the intent behind this was actually not journalism per se, but it was more thinking about stuff like COVID-19 conspiracies, COVID, like health misinformation. Uh, She brought up uh, ivermectin, for example. Like she had an anecdote about how someone sent her an article about ivermectin and asked her to check it out. And so that's the kind of stuff that they were concerned about. But what I find problematic and maybe concerning is that somehow this policy, which is just sort of really badly constructed, badly worded, has somehow managed to just rise up from this, you know, small writing association brainstorming session to the national convention and now is like, you know, official party policy. That That is also what I found so curious and weird about this is like, what is the process for drafting policy? And it is in the Liberal Party, it is wildly convoluted. It's so convoluted they even have an infographic explaining how it works. But they call it an infographic, but it's not an infographic. It's literally just like a page in, with a lot of just text paragraphs. It's just a page. So that's that's like how convoluted it is, is that their infographic is is just text instructions. According to, you know, Catherine, basically she said that, you know, she described them themselves all as amateurs. She freely admits she's not a journalist, has no background in it, kind of distances herself from the wording, you know, says like, oh, like policy experts later on down the road will figure out how to take our idea and turn it into like a real law or something like that. You know, so according to her own version of how this came about, like, you know, she's saying that this is just a recommendation and hopes that someone else will work out all the details. And so when I, you know, post questions to her about how this thing actually works, 
It was really, really vague. At one point, she sort of described it as some sort of like a legal process or a court process. What does that mean? Like a like a tribunal? Is it going to be uh, some sort of special committee is going to decide this stuff? But, you know, even when you press her on this, like, it's very clear that you know, she has like a, I think, good intentions behind this. Oh, liberals are nothing but good intentions. Of course, yes. So I, I'm sure that everyone in the uh, Vancouver Quadra Riding Association actually, you know, had, it, this probably came from a good place. But I mean, they just have not thought through the implications of everything that they're talking about. Like, for example, I actually maybe even to kind of connect this with the Kevin Wong stuff. I mean, I posed the question of, you know, OK, if you're talking about how sources have to be disclosed, you know, a lot of these Me Too type stories that have come out have involved people who, for very legitimate reasons, need to shield their identities. And, you know, I kind of saw this like cognitive dissonance, you know, in the response that I got back where it was like, well, yeah, I do agree with the aims of the Me Too movement. But on the other hand, we have anonymous, you know, disinformation on social media. So like there was no ability to reconcile these two thoughts. Right. I mean, I think this is kind of at the core of the whole like disinformation discourse. Like what is the solution? Right. I mean, you like I, what I'm actually kind of concerned about with this policy is that there's sort of this uh, like really technocratic and almost a technocratic authoritarian kind of impulse like underlying it. Like we have to ban the bad information. We have to ban the false information. But then when you work out like how does that actually work, there's, you know, it's kind of vague and fuzzy. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this actually leads into it. There's another policy that was passed at the same convention over the weekend. And the policies are, there are 24 of them and they were an order priority. So this one was number 10. If you get down to number 14, you get to one called that's just called Truth in Politics that urges the government to develop truth in political advertising legislation to be administered by an independent body, and then helpfully in brackets, including consideration of scope, duration, and sanctions for breach. And be it further resolved, the liberals urge the government to direct the chief electoral officer to develop a model code of conduct for federal political parties. I mean, that, I mean, that part's not the, the worst, but yeah, develop a truth in advertising with, specifically say, basically a tribunal of some sort or body or board to determine the truth. Oh, that, that won't backfire. Yeah, I mean, again, this is raising a really big philosophical question that I think first year like philosophy students probably probably grapple with, you know, like what is truth? Is there one objective truth or can multiple people look at the same things and kind of come to legitimate ideas about what the truth is from that? I mean, I'm sure there are people who look at the Freedom Convoy and might some people might have one idea about the truth of what happened there and others might have another sense of the truth. And I don't think that you know, even speaking as someone who is directly impacted by the convoy, you know, I can acknowledge that people might have different legitimate ideas of truth looking at those events, right? So it just seems philosophically and conceptually flawed at a really, really basic level. Back to the proposal about, you know, sourcing, but the disinformation and requirements for that people have to have sources. Um, I mean, she didn't offer sources for her her the this stuff so in the preamble she says where is the United, she, you know quotes the United Nations Secretary General recognizing disinformation as an existential risk to humanity he did say that or a report attributed to him did say that but I mean it was specifically if she'd offered the full quote or there's the full source it would have said like the ability to cause large scale disinformation and undermine scientifically established facts is an existential risk to humanity so yeah exactly as she was alluding to in your conversation she was specifically talking to undermining science. I mean, you could argue her paraphrases 
is reasonable enough, but I think that's some context. And then in the, the stats she offers about the recent poll, I mean, one of the stats is, is wrong. It's not like wildly off, but uh, so one recent poll, a Polanapicus poll, like last year, did find that 44% of Canadians believe much of the information from news organizations is false. But the other number there, that 71% believe official government accounts of events are untrustworthy, is overstated. It was actually, I think it was 52%. It's still an interesting piece of information, and it's still concerning, but you one would hope that she would have done a more accurate job of sourcing information rather than spreading uh, inaccurate facts. Yeah, so she actually pretty definitively told me that the word source is kind of being misinterpreted because, you know, for journalists, when, you know, we talk about sources, we're talking about people talking to us on background or people, you know, who are talking to us and then end up as unnamed sources and stories. Uh, she was using source in the sense of like a citation or like a footnote in a Wikipedia article or something like that. And so she used the example of like, you know, is it the Center for Disease Control that is talking about this health advice or is it Gwyneth Paltrow? You know, so that was the sense that she was using it. But then, you know, other people are looking at it and like the ambiguity in the language is just, you know, opens it up to all these other interpretations. So again, I think it kind of just goes back to the fact that this was just a really badly crafted, badly worded piece of policy. And I guess the other question is, I mean, I do wonder if people would be as up in arms or concerned about it if it also weren't coming in the context of a bunch of other pieces of actual legislation that maybe I'm not concerned enough about, but that basically do take steps towards regulating the Internet or speech in ways that haven't been regulated before, particularly C-11, the, the revision of the Broadcasting Act or the Online Streaming Act and uh, arguably C-18, the Online News Act. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the liberal government has kept trotting out these uh, pieces of legislation that kind of keep moving in this direction. And I think that is, you know, definitely something that you can sort of sense, like the trajectory is a little concerning. But I mean, like, personally, when I look at all these different things, I mean, I see things that I like, like, I personally like the uh, qualified Canadian journalism organization thing where, you know, nonprofit news organizations can get, uh, you know, t can write off uh, donations as uh, charitable tax receipts. Oh, the registered journalism organization thing. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, I mean, like something like that, I think that's great. Let's encourage more nonprofit news organizations. I mean, there was a big problem with this with C11, where you saw people uh, saying that the government's going to intervene in the, you know, the home pages on your streaming services and they're going to dictate what appears in, on the homepage. And, you know, while I'm not entirely worried or, or alarmed by that, I mean, it's just the, the sort of thinking behind it, it just seems a little bit problematic to me. Definitely. But, I, but once again, when someone like Michael Geist is calling it dangerous, I always wonder, like, am I the one who's missing something? Am I the one who's not, not concerned enough? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not only Michael Geist that is raising concerns. I mean, I talked to uh, Brent Jolly, who's the president of the Canadian Association of uh, Journalists. And, you know, his, I guess his criticism, he just thought that, you know, there is like the way it's worded and the way it's put together is just very vague. Uh, you know, Jolly called it a, a dog's breakfast of a policy, you know, and he said, you know, if anyone had actually consulted with CAJ or other journalism organizations, he would have uh, intervened and said, you know, put a stop to this much earlier on. That shortcuts for this week. Thanks for joining me, Luke. 
Uh, great to be here. Thank you. Yay. Uh, we are on Twitter at CanadaLand, and I too still am now, for now, still kind of on Twitter uh, at Goldsby. And I also co host our monthly Wag the Dog podcast about Ontario's government. Where can people find you, Luke? You know, normally I would I would direct people to my Twitter account, but you know I'm not a big fan of Twitter anymore. And frankly, I've got enough Twitter followers as is. You know, the idea of infinite growth uh, I just reject it as a concept. So uh, you know what? Look me up on Mastodon. I don't even remember what my Mastodon handle is. At El LeBrun, I think actually. Who knows? Maybe it's that. Yeah, search for L-E-B-R-U-N on there, and you know, odds are pretty good you'll find it. There aren't too many people on Mastodon. I'm there. You can look for my last name there. This episode is produced by Katie Lore with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Net Edgefo. The music is by SoCalled. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you value this podcast, and I hope you do, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Thank you.